parties during the Depression, Americans found escape from their troubles in the fabulous movie musicals where beautiful people danced through a world where their only problem was wondering where their next wisecrack was coming from. So tonight, in our mini-musical, we pay homage to these films and to America's favorite dancing couple who helped to tap all our tears away. Hit it, Pete. Junk food supper. 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 All right, welcome to Junk Food Supper, episode ten, the podcast that's not junk food dinner, but it's pretty close. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Sean Byron, joined, as always, by Perky Beantown Bowman, a.k.a. Parker Bowman, up there in the 559. How you doing, Bowman? I'm doing good. Doing, having a good week. I mean, it was, it was pretty touch and go for a minute, but now it's good. Firmly good in the good week. Touch and go because of all this warm weather that we're in, encountering. Is that right? Uh, well, it's been it's been a little bit warm up here. There was one day... I had to go out on assignment on Saturday for work, and it was like almost 100 that day. But outside of that, it's been kind of kind of breezy. It was only like 80 today, which here in the Central Valley, that's like a cold day. So I'm not getting this weather. You are, apparently. I think it's just a factor of the fact that summer's coming so late that I've forgotten what warmish weather is. So it's like it's probably like 78 or something today. I'm sweating my ass off. Yeah, you can get tricked like that. It is weird. Like usually by now there's been a string of, you know, 105 degree days up here and it hasn't been that way uh, this year. So it's like very like surprising and weird. Like I don't think anybody knows how to react. Like I wrote a a story when I went out to uh, like the surf ranch a couple of weeks ago, which is like this surf ranch. It's exactly what it sounds like. I don't know why why I would even explain it, but like uh, I wrote like, oh, summer was in full swing at the surf ranch. It was a hot day. And like all these comments on Facebook were like, man, it wasn't even hot. It's not even summer. It was a, just a, <laughs> a slightly mm-hmm. above average spring day. You're a piece of shit and all this. And it's like, well, I mean, it was, I thought it was hot, but I guess, I guess historically it wasn't, even though me and everybody else at the surf ranch were sweaty, verifiably sweaty, but yeah, so this I think this lack of heat is making people upset. If a bowman is sweaty, to me that's the indicator. You know, it's like the the groundhog coming out of its hole or whatever. Like as as <laughs> soon as bowman's sweaty, summer is here. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's the federally agreed upon <laughs> guideline. You know, that is actually a really good guideline. Now uh, it used to be. Uh, I I used to weigh more than I do now uh, in terms of pounds, and I would get sweaty at the drop of a hat. Just all day long, sweaty. And now I've lost a certain amount of weight. And for the life of me, I can't even get sweaty. I go to the gym, no, not a single drop of sweat. Like, I don't know. My body was so used to being a fat guy for so long, a big fat guy. So like, so I do think that's a good barometer now. If I'm sweating, you can definitely tell it's hot because I don't do that anymore. All right, let's, let's, uh, <laughs> codify this into law. I'm not sure which congressman I need to notify, probably my local one. And and I'll get on that, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think we can, yeah, talk to our city councils, stuff like that. So speaking of stuff, as as we just were, and, and we will be 
following this transition. Um, I, I got a, a tale to relay from this past week. I saw Asteroid City. Is it good or is it bad? Well, I don't even know, man. I am I'm very confused about this movie. Um, I, I was really hyped for it. I, I generally enjoy Wes Anderson's movies. There's been a couple swings and misses for me, but for the most part, I, I really do like his stuff. And this one from a distance, like based on the trailer and stuff like that, seemed like it would be my number one all-time favorite movie. You know, like I love that 1950s stuff. I love Desert Town stuff. You know, I spent most of my life watching Wiley Coyote cartoons, and it looked like this basically took place inside of one. And then I saw it, and I had no idea what to think about it, about the events that take place in the movie, which were surprising to me. But I also have not stopped thinking about it. It's been... I don't know, four or five days or something. And I'm, you know, I just keep thinking about it. So it, it had an impact. I, I I'm, think I'm probably going to go back and try to see it again. Um, but were you planning on seeing this one? Uh, yeah, I this one looks good. Usually his movies come out and they don't really look good. Um, so I usually skip them. Um, but this one does look interesting to me because of aliens and deserts and stuff. It looks pretty and it's got like a good cast and stuff. So if it comes... It's. I think it's going wide this weekend. So if it comes here, I will probably see it. I would say you probably have a good chance of maybe liking it more than his other movies because it is It's pretty different than the stuff that he's done up until this point. And, and I was surprised because I saw the trailer and I thought like, well, this looks like maybe it's going to be Wes Anderson kind of appealing to a more mainstream audience. But but no, that's it's a very strange movie. Um, but uh, worth seeing, and and uh, you know, as soon as I do revisit it, maybe I'll have more cogent thoughts on the quality of it. Because right now I'm I'm kind of baffled, but in a good way, I guess. Yeah, that's always good. I feel like those movies that you think a lot about, like those, are always the ones that I end up liking like a year later. Like the, even if you think you don't like it, as long as you're thinking about it, that's that's a good sign. Yeah, yeah, and it, you know, it certainly stands out in terms of all the movies that I've seen as being very unique. So, that, I mean, that's that's something. Um, it also prompted me to go on a ticket buying spree afterwards. I, I went online and uh, pretty much lined up my entire summer viewing because stuff is starting to sell out. I was surprised. Uh, I, I hit up the Oppenheimer tickets first, and like all the IMAX screenings on, on the first weekend are pretty much sold out. I, I was able to squeeze in just barely in the back um, for w- one of the shows, but I got Oppenheimer and Barbie. I got Mission Impossible and I got Indiana Jones. So I think that I think that'll be my my summer lineup. I, I can't imagine that there's t- too much else that I'm going to go out for. I kind of forget what all's left in the summer. I think there's like a, there's a horror movie. I, I might go see that Insidious movie. Maybe I like the first one. Yeah, did like three bad sequels, but I don't know. I like Patrick Wilson, but outside of Barbie, I'm not interested in any of those. You're getting pretty quiet, Bowman. Oh, choke up on that microphone. Let me turn. Let me turn myself up here. I I was fiddling with the buttons a little bit. I thought my waves were a little high, so I turned them down, which is probably the wrong move. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm not interested. I. Yeah, I I want to see Barbie, but those other three movies you mentioned, I'm not interested in necessarily. Really, not even Oppenheimer. 
I don't know. Like, I hate Christopher Nolan. Like, I just hate him so much. All his movies are so bad and boring. But maybe if he has the framework of, like, a true story, he won't go off in all his stupid, like, jerk-off motion tangents like he always does. Where, like, characters sit around and talk about how love is the only thing that can time travel <laughs> and all this stupid shit. Yeah, it, it does seem like some of his uh, more, like, Spielbergian tendencies might be kind of tamed by the source material here. Like, from what I've seen on the trailers, it looks like it's going to be pretty grim and just kind of like a grim dissection of this dude's, you know, horrendous choice to create an atomic bomb. Yeah, that's a real a real rookie mistake, creating the atomic bomb. <laughs> exactly. He's really got egg on his face. What a fool. Anyhow, what about your week? Buy any tickets? See any uh, indie films or anything like this? I saw one independent film at the theater. Ooh. Uh, the Flash. The new, oh, I see. <laughs> the new independent Flash film. Um, it, I, I, I got caught up in the hype. Like I wasn't interested in it. I don't like many of those DC movies, but people were like, oh my God, there's so much crazy shit in this movie. Uh, it's so weird. There's a lot of crazy, weird cameos and some people were upset about them and some people were happy about them. So I was like, ah, fuck it. I got to go see this fucking thing. So I went and also Jackson told me to go. Jackson said that I would like it. So I, I believed him. I trusted him. And uh, he was right for the most part. I think it's a kind of a fun movie. It's better than I was expecting. It's not like great. I wouldn't recommend it to people because it's like kind of stupid, but it's fun. I would say it's fun. I thought this was a lot of fun. Exactly. Exactly. I do. Also, like I, I think a lot of the the barometer of whether or not people will like this movie is like how much they care about uh, Michael Keaton as Batman. Cause like the whole second act is just like people looking into the camera and going, Holy shit. Do you remember when he said, let's get nuts? Holy shit. Do you remember Batman? So like <laughs> if you're into Batman, Michael Keaton, Tim Burton, Batman, then this is probably the movie for you. I mean, I, I think I would have only have been excited for a retro Batman had they dug Adam West out of his tomb and propped him up on camera. That. I don't mean to spoil this movie that you'll never see, but that does actually happen in this movie. Do they do a CGI Adam West <laughs> or some bullshit like this? They do a CGI Adam West and he appears in the film. And and you're telling me that this movie is fun? <laughs> well, not all the parts are fun. I'm not a big Michael Keaton, Tim Burton, Batman fan. So like that entire second act, I was just like, fuck, like fast forward this. Let's get through this. And then also... Yeah, there's a lot of cameos like that that are like, it's interesting that they happen. Like, it's interesting that we live in a time where Adam West is in a big <laughs> budget Hollywood movie in 2023. But it is a little ghoulish. And that's the that's one of the least ghoulish or ones, ghoulishy ones. Like, there are some other cameos that are very ghoulish. Really? Um, I don't want to spoil people, but mother. Oh, uh, uh, I thought this was exclusively <laughs> Disney's domain, you know, reviving dead actors or using CGI to de-age people or de-age their voices or, or whatever. You're telling me that even Warner Brothers is getting in on this game now? Yeah. 
They didn't even warn a brother that it was going to happen. Fuck, dude. It's game <laughs> over. They're going to have Fred Astaire tap dancing through all the Marvel films and, and all the uh, the DCU films. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. God, I would damn. like to see that. But yeah, it is it is, it is is a spectacle. So I'm glad I saw it. It is wild to see. But I, I think the first act of the movie is like genuinely very good and fun. And then it kind of gets crazy and off the rails, but it's. I don't know. It's a sight to behold, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen any of these DCU movies except for Wonder Woman, which I didn't really even like that much. So I'm, I'm probably not going to start with this one. Um, did you watch all of the Flash TV show? Because that's another thing, right? Is that th- didn't they already make this story? That that's what I've heard is that this is a mm-hmm. a retelling of an episode of the show for which there's like over a hundred episodes or something already. Yeah, well, kind of. I mean, they're both like the fact that Flash goes back in time and like creates alternate timelines and stuff like that's part of that was in the comics first. So they're both just pulling from the same thing. But uh, but yeah, it is my understanding that the WB show did this did this plot line better than this five hundred million dollar movie, did, which is kind of wild. But uh, but yeah, they yeah, they both did essentially the same thing. But I don't I don't watch that any of those WB shows, so I don't really know for sure. You just watch the Archie shows. I I do need to watch more of those Archie shows. I've seen the first couple episodes of Riverdale. I need to get into that. Seems up my alley. All right. Well, um, other than the independent film, The Flash, uh, which I'm guessing you're calling it an independent film, meaning that you were the independent person in the audience of, of one uh, at your screening or <laughs> um, surprisingly not. The movie did bomb pretty hard, but when I went to go see it, I saw it Sunday night and there was a, kind of a lot of people in there. Huh? All right. Other than and, that though, anything thrilling? Um, nothing too thrilling. Uh, I do want to just shout out little Cappy. Just want to, like say what's up Cappy if you're listening we love you uh, me and Cappy had to go to the hospital last night he's got a heart murmur and he's got uh, a lung infection so I uh, just want to say what's up to him make him feel better by saying that to him because <laughs> I know he listens to the podcast uh, but it was a worrisome time he's a very old dog so uh, he's been like wheezing the last few days so I was like very worried for him so it was a very traumatic night but uh, he's okay he's got the heart murmur He's got medicine. He's going to be all right. Well, good to hear that it's uh, you know that the crisis has been averted. Um, yeah, that, that's a that's a scary times. So hopefully, he gets all the uh, the chicken noodle soup and etc. That, that he needs. Oh yeah, yeah. I found out that uh, like the doctor was like he's a little dehydrated, and I was like, holy shit, that makes so much sense because like he's got no teeth, and his his flappy lips and gums just hang down, you know, like Ren from Ren and Stimpy. And when he goes to drink, he'll like lap up water for like 10 minutes. And I'm like, man, like I've always thought like, because I'm dumb, I guess like, man, he's really thirsty. That's the thirstiest dog. He just loves water. (laughs) I think it's because his mouth, no, you know, now that it no longer has teeth and it just flaps open. I think that his tongue doesn't get the water actually into his throat hole. So I, yeah, I think he's dehydrated because of that. All right. That's actually, I'm too that old is what it for is. this. 
he's very old. So now I feel stupid for just thinking that he like really enjoys water when uh, I should be like hand feeding him water to make sure he's not dehydrated. Yeah. Which I'm going to be doing for now on since he's senile and old and elderly. Got to get that bottle out, right? <laughs> I do need to do that. You could take the alternate approach. Just put these dogs in your backyard and feed them occasionally and hope that coyotes don't get them, you know? Yeah, that's what all my neighbors do. All right, well. Well, that is a good ending for Kepi at the hospital. But what about some bad endings? Oh, wow. Now that's a transition. <laughs> you know, I, I tried earlier to come up with one where I was saying, talking about stuff. You know, it was kind of a swing and a miss, but <laughs> wow. From good ending to bad ending to great transition. I love it. Well, thank you. And what does uh, it mean, this transition? Well, it means that for our topic this week, we're going to be talking about bad endings. Uh, this is not tied into the Top Hat movie we'll be talking about later, but it is tied into a TV show that just wrapped up that had a bad ending. That's actually going to be my first pick on, on this list. We're each going to talk about three things that we feel like we have bad endings, whether they're like TV shows or movies or comics or whatever. Um, and I already told you the impetus of why I wanted to do this. So the, me giving you my first one uh, is already spoiled, but I, I won't spoil the actual show. I'll just okay. say that uh, the show Barry, Bill Hader's TV show, it just wrapped up its fourth and final season. It was a bad ending, which is a real shame because the first three seasons are perfect. Some of the best TV I've ever seen. And then season four just kind of shits the bed. And, uh, and I was just very upset. So. Do you have a sense of why that might have happened? I mean, absent of the, of the plot details, did you have a feeling like there was a change in creative team? Or did it feel like they had to rush this for some reason? Or, or uh, just well, random bad luck or what? Well, it's all the same creative team like i think like bill Hader's pretty much everything like he writes everything he directs like pretty much every episode he i think he helps in editing like it's like his thing um for the most part i mean he's got writers and stuff but um but i think that at the end of season three they kind of wrote like a pretty what could have been like a pretty definitive end to the show so i think that with this new season they just kind of like backed themselves into a corner and kind of had to figure out a way out of it. Like, so they, uh, they didn't really have anywhere to go, but they were stuck doing this fourth season kind of a thing. Um, so it felt like that. And then also, uh, it seemed like maybe they knew how they wanted to end the season, but they didn't know how they would get there. So when you have to like write backwards like that, it's very difficult. And so I think that those, both of those things happened to the show, both of the worst things that can happen to a final season in terms of construction both happened i feel like hmm I, I almost wonder if maybe it was a situation where they like didn't look too closely at the contract and forgot that they were you know on the hook for a fourth <laughs> season you know and had these grand plans to wrap it up and they're you know having their summer break oh shit we gotta go back to work in a few months <laughs> it really feels like that because i feel like if if you would like you could Season three ended like that feels like the end of the show. So it really is kind of shocking that 
that they did this this other stuff but yeah or or maybe hbo you know pre discovery merger just threw a bunch of money at them for one more season and they were like you know what that's that's the price that i can't refuse yeah that could be too well, I've like never that. seen any berry, so now I know that I don't need to. Uh, oh, no, thanks no. for for saving me the hassle. I'll I'll delete it from my watch list. It's, no, it's no, no, been no. on there for years. No, 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 no. You, you can watch the first three seasons; they're a masterpiece. You're gonna love it when you finally watch it. You're gonna love it. There's so many LA locations, so many long telephone cords, so much wallpaper. I, they shot it at, at Squat Melt Central. You know, I, yeah. I was in those parking lots while they were shooting some of that. So. Hmm. You know, I, I, yeah, it's, it's weird that I haven't watched it. You're going to like it. But uh, well, what's something that you feel like ended poorly? Well, uh, yeah, I've got one that, that is also um, available to stream on HBO. But before I go through my list, I, I did want to just say this was kind of a tricky exercise for me. You know, I think maybe famously on this show, I, I don't put too much importance on narrative. You know, I'm not really a scriptsman and I kind of think plot is overrated in general. And so I think I'm like much less likely to be disappointed, you know, by the ending to something, whether it's a TV show or a movie, unless they like totally drop the ball. And I think there are some very famous examples that I'm, you know, not going to pick because I, I think we all agree and hopefully these are not on your list, but I guess we'll see. But, uh, you know, I think everybody generally agrees things like Lost or Game of Thrones or A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1, uh, that, you know, <laughs> these are classic examples of, of bad endings that, that even, you know, even I can see. Somebody who is generally satisfied by most uh, plots in, in movies, you know, so, so long as they're told in a way that is either visually interesting or, you know, has some kind of, style that appeals to me. Um, well, it, we're on the same page here that you don't just mean the very end of Nightmare where like the, the blow up dog gets pulled in through the door. You mean like the whole last act, right? We're in agreement that the whole last act sucks in Nightmare? I mean, I, it doesn't bother me as much as it should because I grew up with it and I think it's kind of fun and it's impossible for me to remove my nostalgia from it. But yeah, objectively, it's it's a silly home alone, you know, routine that they go through that that doesn't really make a lot of sense in the context of a horror movie. Hell yeah, hell yeah! You hear that, Wes Craven? Fuck, <laughs> still a great movie, though. <laughs> Very good movie. Anywho, um, I do have one that disappointed me in in recent months, and this is a documentary that was on HBO Max um, about the the um the infomercial host who you might remember named Miss Cleo. Uh, it was called Call Me Miss Cleo is the name of the documentary. And basically it was an investigation into like what was up with this, you know, seemingly Jamaican woman who uh, had this psychic hotline that was advertised pretty heavily uh, throughout the 1990s on cable television. And um you know, I, I saw it pop on pop up on HBO Max, and I was, you know, intrigued from the get go because I have you know a lot of memories of seeing these commercials when I was a kid, staying up late watching TV. It was always on, and it opens up with a pretty fascinating dissection of like what the commercials were and how they came to be, and there was this company behind them, and she was just kind of this 
um, you know, hired actress effectively for the commercials. And, you know, they start getting into the fact that she was not really Jamaican and they're, you know, interviewing these people that she went to school with. And they're like, oh yeah, I went to school with her. She didn't have a Jamaican accent back then. And they're building all these mysteries. And it seems like she's uh, potentially screwing over some people that were involved in the psychic hotline. And there's millions of dollars at stake and all these stakes are being built up. And then in in the end of the documentary, they just kind of do this thing where they're like, they just throw it all away and they're like oh yeah we we don't really know what's up with her maybe the jamaican accent was real maybe it was fake and uh who really cares about any of like it just completely dissolves and uh they don't they don't land it whatsoever so um i guess you know for me that's that's my first bad ending yeah a lot of these like i've I've got one of these netflix type long form investigative documentaries on my list too. And it seems like a lot of these do this. Like there's also this one, this isn't the one that's on my list, but there's like that um, Netflix one. I think it's about like the Elisa lamb thing. You remember that thing in LA where like the girl like was staying at a hotel downtown and like oh, she yeah. ended up in, in the water tower. Oh yeah. Like, and there's yeah, a there's video like, of her in, in the elevator and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Real spooky stuff. Like, there's a few episodes where like they kind of go into the mystery of it. And then like the last couple episodes are like about how, if I remember correctly, I might be conflating two different things, but I think it's in that documentary. Like the last couple episodes are about like a guy who investigated it on its own and then like got canceled by like the people watching because they thought he was like too like ghoulish for like trying to report on her death. And like, then the whole thing is just about him and like how he hasn't been able to find a job and like how he was like shamed publicly. And it's like, well, what is this? Like, this isn't anything. Like, it seems like a lot of these big long form documentaries, like just kind of run out of steam and are just like, we don't really have a thesis statement, but we knew you would click on this because of an algorithm. So yeah, what can you do? It, I mean, it's also like one of those things where I feel like they start the project and they get to the end and they're like, well, this is not really releasable, but you know what? I spent six years of my life making this thing and I'm not going to just throw it away. So (laughs) slap a poster on it and we'll see who clicks. Yeah. There's actually, um, I think it's on Peacock. There's a documentary about Teddy Hart, the wrestler, which is also very much like this. Like the documentary filmmaker, like thinks that Teddy Hart killed a woman. So like he kind of starts investigating it, but then he's like, and ultimately, Teddy Hart was famous, so I wanted to keep hanging out with him, so nothing really happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's no big deal. Well, uh, what is your number two bad ending? Well, my number two, then, is going to be one of these uh, documentary things. Uh, it's one that came out on Netflix a few years ago. It's got three episodes. It's called Don't Fuck With Cats, Hunting an Internet Killer. This is about... Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's this internet phenomenon that happened a few years ago where like somebody posted a video of them putting a bunch of cats in like a bag and then throwing it into a river and all these internet sleuths like poured over like each and every frame. And they were like, Oh my God, that kind of rock is only in this part of uh, Yugoslavia. And like, you know, this type of wood that's in the background is only, you know, can only be bought at this one store in this one town. We got him like kind of shit, like real, Real interesting sleuthing to find this guy who killed cats so that they could like punish him or whatever. And so it follows these people who are obsessed with doing this and like they're on these message boards and in these chat groups and in a Facebook group. And 
the closer they get to the guy, the more he releases stuff. And it's possible that because the guy who killed the cats was like so enamored with this attention that he was getting that he upped his game and killed people, I think. And I think that's the gist of it. It's been three or four years since I watched it. And so the people who were hunting him have to like deal with this idea that because they like got caught up in like a fun internet thing that they accidentally got some people killed uh, because like of their obsession with like true crime stuff. And then at the very, very end, one of them is like, in fact, you know, like us being involved in this story, getting people killed because we love true crime. We're not that different from the people watching this documentary right now. (laughs) And it's like, no, you literally got two people killed. I'm just watching some shit on Netflix. Like I'm not actively getting people killed. It's not the same fucking thing at all. Uh, And it's like just insulting. And it made me so mad when I first saw that. Um, so that's that's kind of a bad ending. If you compare your what the people watching your movie with uh, the people who inadvertently caused murders, horrific murders through their actions, I think that's that's a bad ending. I think. Yeah, I mean that sounds rough. I I never saw that um, that documentary, but I, I do remember people talking about it at the time, and it seemed like something uh, that you know had some interesting elements to it. Like I, I do like this kind of. Um, you know, dissection of like, why are people fascinated by true crime? Why is that such a thing currently? Um, and, you know, online vigilantes, I think, continue to exist. And, and that is kind of a fascinating uh, phenomenon that I would be curious about. But if it's, you know, if it's so heavy handed, the way that they're delivering these messages, I, I could see that being kind of a bummer. Yeah, it's the heavy handedness. And then also... I guess they're, I mean, it's not the same thing by any means. Like, I get that you want to be cute and be like, oh, what if you, like, we're the same because you're watching true crime right now. Like, but it's not the same. Like, these people antagonized and egged on a murderer, like, on purpose. Like, <laughs> so it's like, I don't know, it's just insulting. It was probably an interesting documentary otherwise, though, but it just made me upset. But, but also, if you truly believe that as the filmmaker, then you're saying I'm complicit as well by making this for an audience that I believe is doing something that's morally wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's the filmmaker's fault, not the audience's fault. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the directors, they got to be punished. Well, hopefully you don't think it's my fault if I pick a movie that you love. Um, <gasps> and I'm not sure how you feel about its ending. But I've always been down on the ending of Army of Darkness. Um, and, and I'm talking about like kind of the climactic battle, you know, at the castle with all the, uh, you know, the animat- or the stop motion deadites and, and all that stuff. Um, it just feels shoddily filmed. Things are kind of dark and you can't really tell what's happening in some of the wide shots. I don't like the look of the skeletons in that scene that much. Um, And I I don't know, just something about that sequence has never really worked for me. It it doesn't have um, the sense of climactic action that you would want at that moment in the movie. It just feels always to me like a little bit of a letdown in a movie that, you know, I think overall as a conclusion to the trilogy, it is my least favorite. And, and 
I kind of wish that they went in a different direction overall with it, but especially that end has always kind of just felt really flat to me. Uh, I like much of the ending. There are like little parts in it that I don't like. Like there's a part where like uh, Sheila says the line, uh, I might be bad, but I feel good. And that's like the worst line <laughs> in a movie. All of, I mean, all of the cornball dialogue in the movie is, is pretty bad. Like I know everybody likes Ash's catchphrases, but I think in Army of Darkness, they all feel pretty hokey, like in, not in a great way. I, I think Ash is great in that movie. He's wonderful. No fault lies with Ash. He's perfect. But right, well. I, I, it could have been a little bit more horrific. Like they really play up like the fantasy, like Jason and the Argonauts type stuff. Like it would have been nice to have like a little bit more horror, but, uh, but I, I like that. I like that ending. I like that whole movie. I like, you know, I, I do like the, the fight in the, uh, in the pit at the beginning. It's probably my favorite part of the, the movie. It's the only part of the movie that honestly feels like an evil dead. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. And the, like some of the windmill stuff feels very evil daddy. Yeah. He gets to the windmill and he's getting chased by the, the the shaky cam. I suppose. Well, I got a bad ending here. Okay. One of the worst of all time. No one could argue this. Uh, and it's the ending of Dexter, the television oh. show. Uh, although the ending of the books is really bad too. Um, although they're different. Um, but but equally bad based on uh, books. You, I never knew that it is based on a series of books. Yeah. They, they go their separate ways around like book two, the show stopped being based on the books. Like they just kind of started doing their own thing after book two, but based on books, I read all the books. Some of them are good. Some of them are very good, but most of them are not. Um, but yeah, the, did you, you watch, did you watch the show at all? I never saw a single episode of Dexter, unless you're talking Dexter's laboratory, of which I saw most. This is a different Dexter about a serial killer. Um, And it's great. The first four seasons are masterpieces, I would say. Um, And then it kind of goes off the rails a little bit and it kind of gets mediocre. But then it ends with, I'm going to spoil it for you. An old show. <laughs> so, so I apologize. I apologize for spoiling Dexter, a very old show that you should stop watching after season four anyway. Um, although I actually watched some of season like seven because Julian Sands is in it. But um, at the end of Dexter, Dexter's adopted sister falls in love with him. And he, and then Dexter gives his son away to a serial killer. And then he moves away from Miami to become a lumberjack. What the fuck? <laughs> exactly. I actually kind of like the lumberjack part, but the rest of it is like very, like very stupid. Just the Just most covered stupid in shit. mud and moss. <laughs> that's well, that's the life of a lumberjack. Yeah. Baba boom. <laughs> it's a very bad ending. Nobody liked it, which is why they had to do a revival of it like two years ago and bring and uh, give it like an actual new ending. Bad. Is Lithgow in multiple seasons of, of that show or he had like a short run or what's the deal with Lithgow on that show? He's in season four, the best season, one of the okay. best seasons of anything ever. 
he, I, f- he's I feel like so I, good I would, it. yeah, I would watch the, the Lithgow stuff. I think if you wanted to, you could probably just jump to season four. I don't think you'd really need to to watch all the seasons, but I, I mean, seasons one through three are like really, really super good. But if you just wanted to, if you were just going in as a Lithgow connoisseur, you could probably just jump in at season four and, and be into it. I do consider myself one. He's great. He's so good in it. Well, he's good, but this ending I'm going to talk about next is bad. <laughs> okay. And this is my third and final uh, bad ending. And again, th- this was tough for me, and, and maybe I could have put more than 15 minutes into thinking about this, but but I didn't, and, and this is the best that I could come up with. Um, and it's one that I think probably a lot of people feel the same way as me. Maybe you won't. Let's see. I know it's a movie that you've seen before. I just don't love the ending of Kill Bill Volume 2. You know, um, you've got almost two full movies worth of complete ass kickery, you know, like scenes where uh, people are pulling knives out of cereal boxes and people are getting, you know, shot point blank in the face and there's snake bites and eyeballs and, you know, things are getting really gnarly. And then you end it with this anti-climax that, that I know was the point and, you know, was intentional, but I think it was a bad intent. You know, I think if you want to pay tribute to Kung Fu movies, one of the greatest joys of a Kung Fu movie is the climax. They always build to a thrilling finale and you're almost always guaranteed that it's going to be the longest fight in the movie, that it's going to have the best action in the movie and, you know, the biggest stakes and and things are going to go crazy at the end. And then Tarantino decides, you know, to kind of deflate all the tension with this boring ass speech about Superman and then the dumbest little, uh, you know, three finger poke into the heart maneuver. And I, I'm continually bummed by it because I love both of those movies. And even despite the ending, I, I still do love the second one. But man, how cool would it have been to have had, I don't know, like a epic shootout in his Mexican villa, you know, similar to... Uh, the Django's? Yeah, from the end of, of Django Unchained. Um or, you know, just like a, a cool fist fight or anything other than uh, a dumb conversation about Superman and then, uh, you know, Bill just keeling over. Well, I think this is crazy. That ending is wonderful. Really? He, yeah, it's it's not about fighting. It's a, with your fists. It's about fighting with your emotions. Oh, tell that to an, an audience who wants thrills like me. Well, like, I mean, is there any fight scene on Earth that could, like, be better than the Crazy 88's fight scene? Like, nothing, like, anything that Quentin Tarantino would have done in that moment, like, with Bill at the end would have been anticlimactic, though, right? Like, there's no way to top what came earlier in that movie. Or the Oren Ishii, like, that, like, the 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 uh, snowy garden fight, like... No way to be better than either of those two fights. So like, All right. I, you know, I, I can try. accept that. So I would have even, you know, been thrilled to have seen then like a cool uh, clip package. You know, let's get RZA to put together a music video of all the best fight <laughs> moments from the past two movies. Something, anything. I don't know. Like, or like a, a cool foot chase. Maybe uh, David Carradine can learn parkour or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, they got, I mean, they got jet skis down in Mexico, right? Break out the jet skis for the finale of Kill Bill Volume Two. Anything, you know? Well, you're raising some good points. All movies are better with jet skis and parkour, so maybe I'm maybe I'm on your side now. Yeah. What about parkour do, on jet skis? That would be rad. Um, there is parts of that ending I don't like, though. Like, there's like the part. Actually, I think it might be. Like, yeah, the part at the end where, like, they're, like, her and the daughter are, like, safe together in the hotel room, and they're, like, watching the show, and it's, like, the mama bear loves the baby bear, and, like, I think that's, like, a little too too much, um, a little too saccharine at the end. And then also, I think it's at the beginning, actually, but, like, the part where um, the bride, like, breaks the fourth wall and like tells us what she's doing in the movie to catch us up because it's part two. I hate that. I hate that she breaks the fourth wall. Yeah. Well, he likes to do that though. You've always got somebody narrating at you telling you how nitrate film works or something like this, you know? (laughs) True. Yeah. He's a joker, that guy. Well, Well, those are the bad endings. What are your bad endings, junkies? Email us, jftpodcast at gmail.com, or more importantly, send us a voicemail uh, by calling 347-746-JUNK. That's 347-746-5865. Let us know what endings you think suck. And speaking of voicemails, we got one this week. And here it goes. Please welcome Mia Sweet Man. You're so sweet. You're so sweet. You're so sweet. Uh, you know, the real tragedy is the term of the movie, the Terminator. I guess it's very much about fate, and that's what they've been saying, I guess, with all people. But, you know, it still ended if Arnold Schwarzenegger, Terminator, the first movie, after, you know, trying a little bit with all of this, he could have easily just stopped and stood back and realized, maybe after the technoir shooting, that, you know, maybe this isn't all that's cracked up to be. Just because he's supposedly programmed to do something doesn't mean that that, that, that he has to follow it. You know, uh, the movie probably could have had a happy ending where the Terminator moved out to Sonoma, and, you know, got a job. Well, didn't really get a job, but, like, you know, uh, found a way to make a living by painting colorful rocks and wearing a big sun hat. Maybe adopt a cat. You know, spends his time walking through the... uh, Maybe he works on a, a vineyard or works, you know, to start his own vineyard, even. I don't know. That's just a thought. <laughs> well, thank you, Mia. Um, I think that kind of does happen in some of the Terminator movies. Like in the that one that's like Back to the Future 2's on top of the first one, um, Genesis, I think. I think he like becomes a construction worker for a while. And then uh, that newer one where like... Uh, what's her face comes back. Sarah Connor comes back. I think, I think he just start, like lives life as a human in that one. I think if I remember correctly. So I think you're onto something here. 
or you watch those movies and don't remember them. One of the two. But uh, but I think that's kind of happened a little bit. Yeah, well, and in the pinball adaptation, he takes on a career of tucking little metal balls behind a little gate for you. <laughs> One of the best professions a man can have. Exactly. Uh, well, thank you, Mia. Um, and, and if you guys want to talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger's many jobs with us, remember to call 347-746-5865. Uh, but on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about Top Hat. So stick around. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Let's uh, oh, start pretty little. I love you. So I stroke it. I pet it. Junk Food Supper. Our movie tonight is going to be Top Hat uh, from 1935. Uh, this is an Archeo Radio Pictures release starring Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, who made 10 movies together, uh, nine of which they were the leads in. Uh, this is their third time leading a film together, and it was directed by Mark Sandrich, um, a veteran RKO musical director who made about half of the Fred and Ginger pictures. Uh, and the plot is a fairly familiar one. Uh, Fred Astaire plays a famous Broadway dancer slash singer uh, who has come to London to secretly join the cast of a show that uh, the actor Edward Everett Horton's character is producing. Uh, through a series of mix-ups, Ginger Rogers confuses Astaire the dancer for uh, Horton the producer, uh, which is a problem because Astaire has been flirting with her and also because Horton's wife is a good friend of Rogers. Uh, so effectively, Rogers thinks that her good friend's husband is trying to flirt with her, uh, despite it actually being Fred Astaire, who is a single man. Uh, also in the mix is a potential suitor for Rogers, uh, a funny Italian stereotype guy. Uh, and side note about this guy, he's played by an actor named Eric Rhodes, and his Italian characterization was apparently so offensive to the Italian government and Mussolini in particular, uh, that the movie was banned in Italy. Uh, so that <laughs> just seemed kind of petty that they would be so offended by this guy's accent, but 
because that's uh, that's the facts according to IMDb. Um, I, and that's, well, I think I think that's reasonable because when he was talking, I couldn't tell what his accent was supposed to be. I couldn't tell if he was French, Italian, or Borat. Like, yeah, well, he's kind of, <laughs> and I think he's just American. I, I think he's from like Ohio <laughs> or something, but uh, you know had this accent that he deployed in, in, in a few films, at least. Uh, I think he was known for this kind of a, a character and, and became kind of famous for it, which also is, is kind of funny. Um, but that's that's basically the setup of the movie. And so uh, it's kind of a process of waiting around to see if these two will, in fact, fall in love. And in the meanwhile, you know, we're treated to a number of dance scenes, mostly tap dancing, uh, set to the music of Irving Berlin. Um, and those dance scenes are a, a big reason to watch this, um, or, or to watch any Fred Astaire movie. And, you know, what I love about them is not just, you know, how they capture a talented dancer, but how they pushed forward filmmaking at the time, you know, uh, Astaire came from pretty great success on the stage before he came to films. And so as a result, he was able to get complete creative control over his dance scenes in Hollywood um, and he invested so much time designing the dances and, and practicing his dances uh, that he really wanted them to be captured perfectly on film. So he would insist on shooting in very long takes as much as possible. Uh, he would insist on shooting with mostly white backgrounds in the, in the studio so that you could make out his silhouette. Um, and most crucially, uh, he had his choreographer, this guy uh, named Hermes Pan, uh, move alongside the the camera dolly operators as he danced. And so basically he had designed these dances with this guy who knew all the movements perfectly. And then when they were shooting it, that guy was effectively dancing with the cameraman to get the shots, you know, to perfectly line up with what Fred was doing. And so you end up with a much more dynamic looking dance scene and just a more dynamic looking movie overall, um, with these Fred Astaire pictures than I think you would with most other musicals of the 1930s, because, you know, most of the other dancers of the thirties didn't have that kind of control. Uh, you know, they weren't able to effectively direct their own dance scenes like he was. Well, yeah, to that, I mean, I haven't seen a ton of this kind of stuff, but like um, I've seen some of those Busby Berkeley's and like, they're wonderful and like they're big and fun and crazy, but like they're really shot like plays. Like aside from like, sometimes they'll do like those aerial shots where like they, you know, do it from, you know, above, like in the rafters, they'll film it from like the rafters or whatever. But outside of that, like they pretty much get everything, you know, from far away, uh, you know, get the whole stage and shoot it like a play. Whereas this is, like you said, a lot more dynamic and feels a lot more modern and, and it moves around a lot more. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, it's, it's great because this is such a, kind of old fashioned dance style tap dancing, but for those scenes to feel as modern as they do, I think helps, you know, keep you interested as, as a viewer, you know, I, I think that there is probably something inherently silly about tap dancing as well, that most people just probably think it's kind of a goof, but when you watch these guys, I mean, especially a guy like Fred Astaire, it looks so exuberant that it's for me, at least it, it's hard not to be charmed by it. And then, you know, in these RKO musicals, typically the dances and, and the songs make sense in the context of the story. You know, there's less of people just kind of breaking into dance out of nowhere. Like these are stories about theatrical singer slash dancers 
And so it makes sense that they would be like rehearsing their dances or even that they would dance with each other in a romantic setting, like at a park or something like this. And so it, it feels pretty natural, you know, even though that this is a dance movie, it is a musical, you can kind of watch this and, and forget that it's both of those things. Um, and then beyond the dancing, I think it's also just a blast to watch these two screen legends fall in love. I mean, uh, Fred Astaire is such a warm, friendly presence on screen. And it seems like, um, you know, counter to a lot of his contemporaries, it seems like off screen, he was a really nice guy as well from everything that I've read. And then Ginger Rogers is just the perfect foil for him. You know, she's so gorgeous and, and also just naturally funny, um, Prior to working with Astaire, she had a, a background in doing these kind of semi-risque pre-code comedy shorts, you know, where she would, uh, you know, be flirtatious and funny. And I think that trans- translates really well into her work here with, uh, you know, a guy who is kind of nerdy looking and maybe not the most charismatic on the surface and kind of like a shy, nice guy. But you put them together with, uh, you know, this kind of bombshell and, and, and I think it works and and, um, and man, yeah, there is just something special about seeing these 1930s babes in black and white that I think really does enhance their beauty. Like they look like these Greek statues in, in white marble or, or something, the way that they're lit and the way that the black and white captures them. It's just, um, I think Kevin Moss said it best when he said, Baba Boom. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, besides Ginger and Fred, we also have a familiar cast of actors. If you've seen, um, any of these RKO comedies that they tended to recycle the, the same crew of, of actors. My favorite being this guy, Edward Everett Horton, uh, who you might recognize from his voice as the narrator to the fractured fairy tales on Bullwinkle. Uh, but he's just a classic character actor with a great sly grin um, that, that he deploys pretty effectively in this. Uh, there's another guy in this Eric Blore who plays the, slightly deranged manservant to uh, Horton. And I think that he's pretty funny as well. Um, He's got a a funny bit in this where he falls off a a gondola that I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, You also get a very brief appearance by a 25-year-old pre-fame Lucille Ball playing a florist in a blink-and-you-might-miss-it appearance. Um, And besides the cast, you know, the dialogue in this, I think, is much sharper and more modern feeling than you might expect from a 1930s flick. Um, And while it is set in the upper class, which I think all of these RKO musical comedies are set in this kind of upper class world, um, it still feels like it's written for a general audience, you know, where I think this upper class setting is more like an aspirational or like fantasy escapist kind of a thing, you know. Um, like they don't ever discuss the class system, uh, you know, or, or race either for that matter, you know, and it's, it's kind of a shame that most of these great tap dancing films, uh, do fail to include any black tap dancing artists, despite the fact that they pretty much invented the art form. Uh, but instead of, you know, any of that, any dissection of, of class or race, they tend to just be kind of um, glitzy fantasias, you know, for a country that it was kind of struggling to get out of the depression. Um, and speaking of glitz though, uh, we do have one of the all time coolest film sets, the huge Venice, Italy set, uh, that they built on the RKO soundstage with a huge canal and gondolas going by and this cute little cafe by the water, just a massive, 
cool looking set that I love spending time in, in this movie. And it is funny to see it, you know, shortly after we watched the movie, don't look now Mm -hmm. also set in Venice, Italy, (laughs) but a complete opposite version of Venice that is all cloaked in shadow and mysterious and foreboding. Uh, whereas here in the 1930s, like it could not be a more cheerful, um, almost like it's a small world kind of environment. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I thought of it's a small world too. And, and of course don't look now, but I I'm correct in reading this movie and that that is like the supposed to be the real Venice, even though it's like a set that looks nothing like Venice. It, like they're, we're supposed to take it that they're in the real Venice, right? Or was that like a, yeah. No, okay, I, I thought so. Yeah, it, it's the real Venice, and, and audiences in 1935 had no fucking clue what Venice looked like. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I actually I like it that it's this done up sort of magical style of Venice. I just because it's so different from modern movies. I was like, there's like 10 percent of my brain that was like, no, this is like a like the theater set that they're just walking around. This isn't real Venice. But I, so I just wanted to make sure. I thought it was the real Venice. So I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, I I love that. The, yeah, they do like this weird sort of. It almost looks like heaven from Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey or something. Like it's, it's like totally unreal, but it's it's wonderful to look at. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, and and a great place to you know set the climax of the movie. And overall, you know, this is my second time seeing this movie. I I saw it first about two years ago when I started getting into all these tap dancing movies. You know, back when the pandemic was raging. Um, And on my second watch, I still love this thing. You know, I think it's a good entry point into the world of Fred and Ginger. Um, I think if you like this, then the good news is there's nine more of these movies that you can enjoy. Uh, But if you don't like this, I think you can can probably pretty safely skip uh, the rest of them. Not to say that the others are not as good as this. I, I think that there's one or two that I would probably rank alongside this, but this is maybe the most um, easily relatable and, and like I said, just kind of a good entry point. Um, so, I mean, my original intent here was I'm looking for a five-star Bowman pick. I, you know, I think that this may be the longest of all long shots, but man, I'm, I'm still holding hope for my impossible dream over here because I, I feel like if you do love this, like I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll be thrilled uh, for you because you're going to have nine more movies of fun to have with this fun duo. Uh, but anyhow, tell me, Bowman, what did you think about this movie from the from the dawn of sound pictures? Top hat from <laughs> 1935. Um, well, as you can probably imagine from the way I've talked about it so far, I, I do enjoy it. Um, nice. I like that's, that's victory number one. Yeah. I like the way it looks and I like the way that it feels pretty modern for the most part. I mean, well, it looks more modern than I would expect. There's a lot of stuff in this that is not modern and that's kind of the stuff I don't like about it. You mean like um, the social latitudes or social latitudes? Um, well, I mean like, um, like there's a lot of stuff in here that like I didn't even have like context for like for instance like a lot of this hangs on like this threes company sort of mix up where like the ginger rogers whose name is dale in this right dale yeah which i mean that is unfortunate and probably pretty (laughs) confusing very confusing um you know like she's hanging out with her friend who's 
married to the guy who thinks who she thinks that Fred Astaire is, but like, I don't, like, why aren't the married couple ever together? Like, you would think that this could get resolved very easily, but like, like, is it the kind of thing where like it was taboo for like a married couple to be seen together in public in the thirties? Like, I, I mean, that's probably what it was. Like, maybe they couldn't be in the same no. hotel room because I, it's like. <laughs> I, I think I mean, the thing is, he's just like a workaholic, and okay. maybe doesn't like his wife that much as well. Okay, I thought maybe like in the olden days, if you traveled with your wife, like you would have to like be in separate <laughs> hotel rooms or something because otherwise God would frown upon it. But if if, if you weren't married, for sure, I mean, I'm I'm sure yeah. that that would be a scandal. But but no, I I think the implication is just that he's been busy. He's trying to woo Fred Astaire into joining his production, and that's kind of where all his focus is. Okay, well then that makes sense then. Um, but yeah, but like there's a lot of other like jokes like that and stuff that like I like like there's um like the one guy's reading the telegram and then he's like, Who would write a telegram like this? And then Chinjaraja says, I don't know, it sounds like Gertrude Stein. It's like how the fuck am I supposed to know what that joke means? <laughs> well, I mean that I, there's always been topical references, right? I mean that they're pretty light on them here. I mean, those never age well. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, but, and I'm like, there's other ones too that like, I'm kind of forgetting now, but it was like, I mean, like just like the whole premise of like, like traveling with like a chaperone. I think that happens in this at one point. Like, I don't know. There's like some weird old timey stuff in here for sure. Um, and the old timey jokes, um, like there's one where Fred Astaire tells his friend that they've got to go to Italy they got to go by plane. And then his friend says, what kind of plane? And Fred Astaire says, one with wings. Ha! <laughs> and then later there's a joke where, uh, where they're like hanging out with like, like doing stuff with like a horse drawn carriage. And someone's like, uh, wow, what is it? You know, what is, what kind of powers do you have that you have powers over these horses? And then Fred Astaire says horsepower. Oh, <laughs> And then, uh, and then they're talking about the horses again later. And then Ginger Rogers is like, yeah, you know, automobiles are played out. I think the horse is coming back. And Fred Astaire says, well, where is he coming from? (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lot of real awful jokes in this. Um, but there's some good jokes too. Yeah. But, but these awful jokes, I mean, I, I don't feel like they, they don't waste your time too heavily. I mean, they, they pass through quickly and, and they don't, I don't feel like they ruffle too many feathers on their way through. Like, yeah, they're just a lot of throwaway lines that are just silly nonsense, but these old movies are dense with dialogue. Most of which is just kind of silly nonsense. Well, that's true. I don't, I, I think if you're writing the joke, what kind of airplane one with wings, I think you wasted my time. <laughs> I think Fair enough. <laughs> so, yeah, I think even at the time they knew that was not a good one. But um, but there are some good jokes. Like there's a scene where I think it's Fred Astaire. Somebody um, at the beginning is has the big newspaper and they're hanging out in the lounge where you're not allowed to make any noise. Yeah. But he's got to fold the big newspaper, which is very hard to do without making noise because newspapers at that time are like seven feet long. Yeah. Uh, you you would go- know this as a newsman. Yeah. 
our papers now are teeny tiny. I miss the the days of the old big newspapers. It was fun. I, I used to, when I first got into newspapers, I was a paginator and I designed pages and it was fun to do on those big papers. It sucks to do now. There's no room. There's no canvas. But, uh, but yeah, he's got to like fold it and he's like trying hard not to make any noise. And I thought that was very funny. Um, so I like that part. Um, there's there's a part where he he, uh, prof- he proposes marriage to Ginger Rogers. And then she, thinking that he's a married man, slaps him. Or she's like, how could I fall in love with a guy like you? Slap. And then he's like, oh, she loves me. You know, like. That's a funny joke. And it's also a joke that was like ripped off a zillion times on like Looney Tunes and stuff. I feel like I saw that joke a million different times from a million different people as a kid. So I assume it came from this first. Um, And I like that. I like sometimes when we watch these 30s movies, it's fun to see like where all the Looney Tunes stole their all their jokes. Yeah. Um, Or to help you identify who they were like doing caricatures of, you know. (laughs) Yeah, that one too. Uh, realizing that somebody was like an actual famous actor and not just yeah. like some weird creature that <laughs> Tex Avery came up with. It's like, oh, that, that was Clark Gable that uh, Bugs Bunny fooled in the foot race. <laughs> now I yeah. get it. Um, the dancing is fun. There's this part in the first dance where Fred Astaire is going crazy and he wakes up Ginger Rogers, uh, which I love, by the way. Like, I love that he's like tap dancing so hard that it wakes her up downstairs. Because I don't think that, I think that's her introduction. Like the camera zooms in hard on her bed and she wakes up. So like, yeah, just the fact that she's like sleeping down there unbeknownst to us. Like I think it, you know, as opposed to like something where like we see her earlier and she's like, well, I need as much sleep as I can get. I hope no one tap dances on my ceiling or whatever like this. Like the fact that that's her introduction, we like, and it also kind of plays with the form a little bit too, because they're up in the room. And because you don't know anything about Ginger Rogers or that room, it's out of frame. So it doesn't exist. Like that's kind of how we're told to understand film. Anything out of the frame doesn't exist. So the fact that he's tap dancing on her ceiling that does exist is like kind of a meta joke, I think. Um, So I think that's fun. And like the whole sequence where like the camera zooms in hard to wake her up and and all that. Plus she's wearing that lingerie. Also the lingerie. Yes. Um, It's... It gives you a boner <laughs> <laughs> and, but yeah, like that dance sequence is fun. He does this thing occasionally where like he'll be doing his little tap dancing and then he'll tap like on the wall. Like he'll hit his little feet on the wall, which uh, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody do tap dancing. I mean, maybe I have, I don't know. I mean, I, but, but I don't know. I thought it was fun. Uh, a lot of fun like, cane work as well in these dance routines. You know, he's always, implementing the cane to create different rhythms with his tap. I do like a lot of the cane stuff. Uh, when he turns his cane into a gun and shoots dozens of people, I didn't quite understand, <laughs> but it's fun. You know, it's just for fun. <laughs> it goes on for so long. It's like, it gets awkward, but, um, but I do like, yeah, that he uses the cane and yeah. And it's like, you always see tap dancers with canes, like in, you know, like the, the WB frog. He's got a cane. Um, and it's like just kind of a thing that you see over and over like that. They're like, you know, if you're doing shorthand for a guy putting on an old timey show, he'll have a cane. And I, I guess I never realized why until now. It's because, yeah, you have like a third instrument. If you're doing tap dancing, you can use the cane. Um, 
So that was cool. That was cool to learn that. Um, and then, um, and then it kind of slows down a little bit. And Fred Astaire is kind of a stalker for a while, which is like a little bit weird. Um, maybe he should take, you know, he's like uh, following this lady and like stealing her horse trunk carriage and all this, um, which is kind of funny and kind of weird. Uh, but then they go to Italy and they do the cheek to cheek song, which is a banger. Yeah. Uh, and then the, what's the name of that final song? The one that starts with a P. Oh yeah. Like two Puccini or something like that. It's like P- Piccolini or something, right? Piccolini. Yeah. That's a banger. 100% banger. Uh, that, that performance and that song. Um, so, so yeah, so I, you know, hearing so much about Fred Astaire, like I used to watch, so you think you can dance a lot. And Nigel Lisgow was the host of that show. And he's like a, a tap dance choreographer. Like it was pretty uh, well known. I think he actually did the choreography for the apple, the movie we did on the very first junk food dinner. Oh, wow. Um, but he's always talking up Fred Astaire um, as I'm sure all tap dancers do. So as you know, it's cool to finally see some of his stuff. Um, I think that, you know, for a guy who's like not athletic and has no cardio, I think he's really good at <laughs> tap dancing. <laughs> Um, but I think to be fair, some- they had not yet invented exercise, you know, <laughs> true. Um, so, you know, it's cool to see him do his stuff, but like, I do think that people have kind of added on to, to these repertoires as you know, I mean, that happens with all art from, you know, and all, all, all things, but, um, but yeah, I think that he's, he's very fine. And, uh, hearing you say that, yeah, he was in charge of picking out the white background so that you could see a silhouette. That makes perfect sense because uh, those silhouettes are great to see a lot of the time, uh, especially when he's wearing his tails, like he's singing about at one point, his tails and his top hat. Um, so not only does it look good and make everything in the movie have this sort of ethereal sort of quality to it, it's also uh, functional, which is cool. Um, so yeah, so I like this. But I found parts of it to be pretty slow. For a 1930s movie, being 100 minutes is like a lot of minutes. Um, so I wasn't in love with it, but I do like it. So I'll give it a thumbs up. It's not, I'm not going to give it five stars, but I'll, I'll give it certainly more than two and a half stars, which is the average oh number boy. of stars the movie gets. I will give certainly it three. Certainly more than two and a half. That's all you're going to guarantee me on this? <laughs> Well, I haven't decided. It's going to be either three or three and a half. Somewhere in there. Now who's tap dancing? You're tap dancing on the grave of Fred Astaire. Well, I mean, he he should have come up with some better jokes. You know? He was too busy, you know, picking out white backgrounds. (laughs) I do like his white backgrounds. I don't know. Maybe it might be more. I don't know. I'll have to. I'll watch that Piccolini again. If I like that Piccolini more this time, I'll, I'll bump it up. But. It's a very long movie. Do you foresee any kind of a future in which you would watch another Fred and Ginger picture without my involvement? Uh, without police involvement, I would. Yeah. Um, maybe. Like, what was the time frame on them doing stuff? Like, did, are they were they making movies in like the '60s when they had color no, and stuff no, like that, no. or are they all like this? Uh, well, nine out of the ten are black and white. RKO movies made in the thirties and then they reunited for a 10th one in like the mid to late forties for MGM that is in color. 
and it's pretty good. It's not not the best of them, but if you're really hung up on color, you could watch that. But it, I don't know. Like I said before, I think she's all the more beautiful in black and white. Yeah, I actually don't have a problem with the black and white. I think it actually looks really good for this movie with the sets and stuff, but uh, maybe more dy- dynamic moves, maybe a movie with like no rear projection might suit them better. Like maybe like scenes where they're like in the real world could also maybe be fun. Um, yeah, that that's tricky. In the thirties, there's not a whole lot of real world action going on. It is yeah. very studio bound. That's true. That is true. So yeah, I, yeah, I'd be willing to watch more of these guys. I'd be willing to watch more. Yeah. Especially Check. they, do, do they all have like these kind of wacky, uh, Three's company yeah. sort of vibes to them? More or less. I mean, they're all kind of screwball comedies. None of them are... Well, that's not true. I think that the very last one they made for RKO is a bit more of a drama. But for the most part, they're just kind of silly comedies like this where, you know, there's comedic mix-ups and fun dance. I do like comedic mix-ups. So, I yeah, I think I could watch more of these. Yeah. Give, you know, give them a spin. They tend to show up on HBO Max uh, now and again. Or just Max now, I guess. Um, but I, I love them. And, you know, I, I do think it is impressive. And maybe this is just me having kind of a low bar. But the fact that these movies are almost 100 years old, that sound pictures had been around for less than a decade, for them to make movies that are even like, you know, baseline watchable back then is impressive to me. But for, you know, a movie like this that I feel like you watch it, and yeah, I guess there's a reference or two here or there that feels dated, but the story is still completely relatable. The characters are still fully relatable and, you know, uh, it still connects. I, I think that's impressive, but, uh, you know, maybe I'm just a grandpa. You might be. Like the story of this is that Fred is th- or like Ginger Rogers can't marry the guy she just met. So she marries her boss the day afterwards. Like that's, I feel like that's kind of a hard thing to relate to in 2023. Maybe that's fair. But it's, it's wacky and that's what's important. Yeah. I don't think they're going for realism. So it works out. And, you know, Fred Astaire, he's got a nice face, you know? Yeah. Kind of a Jiminy Cricket vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Like I always thought like, because he was such a big star. Like I was, you know, like I never knew what he looked like or anything. I never saw any of his stuff. So I was like expecting like some Henry Cavill looking fucking dude, you know, like I thought this was going to be the most attractive man in the world since he's like one of the biggest stars of all time. So the fact that he's like, looks like an accountant, like I thought was like really charming. I like that about him. He's a plain boy from Nebraska, you know? (laughs) Yeah. He's not one of these big city dancers. (laughs) I like that. Well, speaking well, of liking things, the most liked segment of the show is about to begin. Most important part of the show. Um, so I understand that you like dancing. So I think that you would like dancing. Maybe, maybe, maybe if you got to see some people who like can dance and like also have done like some cardio. Um, maybe, maybe you might like that. I was thinking. Maybe you okay. might like. Is this a Jean Claude Van Damme movie? It might be, it might be. Some more modern forms of dance I think maybe you could like. I think maybe if you stepped up your dance game, you could maybe enjoy it. Maybe if you stepped up to the streets, you could enjoy that, Sean Byron. I think we should watch the movie Step Up to the Streets 
from 2008. The uh, the sequel to the hit Step Up that is superior to Step Up and kicked off an entire fucking Step Up franchise that continues to this very day. Wowza. Okay. I, it's I a masterpiece. Am wi- I'm willing to watch this movie, but I, I do want to make it clear. Are we still pretending like you're looking for a movie that I'm going to rate oh. five stars or? I Well, I wasn't thinking that. I don't think you'll rate this five stars. I think the, if you like dance, if you like dancing the way you say you will, there's no way you will not like this movie. It is a phenomenal piece of dance cinema. Um, and I do think that you'll like it. I don't think you'll give it five stars. I would be very surprised if you did, but I will be absolutely shocked if you dislike this movie. Okay. All right. I expect I will dislike it, but, but again, I'm, I'm willing um, to watch it. Do I you mean, like, it was made for teenagers in the two thousands, right? I mean, that's, it's not my demo, but you like dancing, right? Do you like other forms of dancing that aren't tap dancing? I mean, I don't dislike it, I guess. Is tap dancing the only dance you like? Is that well? I think, the, I think the thing I like about dance movies is the way that they utilize the medium of filmmaking. And, and like, there tends to be a lot of interesting filmmaking going on in these dance movies because there was a spectacle to capture and it was different than just people sitting around in a room having a conversation, you know? So whether it's like the, the Busby Berkeley stuff or, or this, like, they're doing interesting things with the filmmaking. I think that applies to this movie. Okay. I think that the way that they capture a lot of the dancing is, is yeah. I, yeah, I, I think you're going to like this. Okay. I'm, I'm open to it. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm not afraid of a, of a dance movie. And the only thing that I know about this movie is like the, the South park episode. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, well that's, you got served. A different. Oh, oh, is that different? That's a different one. Was that later? But, or? Uh, that might have came first. It was around, like, dance fighting was very popular at the movies for, like, three years. I've never seen any of those 2000s dance fighting movies, so. I've seen all the step-ups, except for the first one. But they get good at part two, from what I understand. So, I think you like it. There's some, there's, there's fun to be had. Oh man, you got served has Lil Kim and Steve Harvey in it though. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen that. I don't think. I want to see Steve Harvey break dancing. I don't think he break dances. I think he just gets upset when people make sexual innuendos. <laughs> and it makes sense. I mean, he wouldn't want to get those suits dirty. Yeah, but yeah, I think this is on like it's on something. It's streaming somewhere on like HBO or something. So. It should be easy to find. Well, it's only fitting that you know after I subjected you to a a dawn of sound films tap dancing <laughs> feature that I you know I would get served a, a much I, more modern teen centric dance movie. I I really genuinely think that you will like this. If just pay attention to like there's like some melodrama and stuff like you can maybe check your phone during those scenes, but if you Pay attention to the dance. I, I will be surprised if you do not like this. Okay. You like Jabberwockies? I like their name. I like making jokes about them at Universal Halloween Horror Nights. <laughs> oh, do you not buds. like their dancing? I don't think I've ever seen it. 
All right. Well, you're in for a treat because they're in the movie. Oh, really? Okay. Finally, I'll get to see them without having to wait in line when I'm trying to go on Freddy Krueger mazes. Mm, I'm pretty sure they're in one of them. I think it's this one. Let me, let me, let me double check. But yeah, they're in step up to the streets. So, uh, a classic film that you're going to like. I genuinely, I, I'm not doing this as like a joke. I genuinely think you like it. And I genuinely like this movie too. So that I believe. Well, it's because I'm a teenager. Uh, you know, <laughs> me and these young kids, we, we know entertainment, but, uh, well, at least Kevin's not here to to witness how two weeks in a row we've gone from being a secret wrestling podcast to just openly being a <laughs> dance podcast. Well, we're doing some Broadway next <laughs> the week afterwards. I hope so. We're just going to do all the all the forms of theater and entertainment that aren't cult movies for now on. Let's wrestling. We could review some radio dramas. Yeah, radio dramas, Broadway, dancing. I actually wouldn't mind listening to some episodes of The Shadow or something. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, okay, well, I, I guess that is, uh, that's what's on the books for next week. It, it will be a review of Step Up to the Streets, and also most likely some other segment, which will be uh, kept confidential until that time. <laughs> but until that time, uh, you can do all of the usual things that we suggest to you at the end of the show. Uh, which is, you could go to junkfooddinner.com. Uh, that's where you can get back episodes of Junk Food Supper and Junk Food Dinner. Uh, go to patreon.com slash junkfooddinner if you want access to our boner episodes uh, of the podcast, some of which feature Kevin Moss. Um, we've been reviewing uh, classic animes over there. We've been uh, reviewing what's coming out on vinyl uh, for coming months and all kinds of fun segments, so go check that out. Uh, let us know what you thought of the show. Let us know what you think of my fate. Will I potentially enjoy Step Up to the Streets? Uh, give me a preview of, of what I'm going to be uh, sitting through uh, by emailing us at jfdpodcast at gmail.com or leaving a, us a message at 347-746-JUNK. That's 347-746-5865. Um, we're on Instagram, kind of maybe on Twitter, but not really. We are on Facebook.com slash Junk Food Dinner. That's a good place to go. Um, find us on the internet. Oh, find us on Discord. Um, come chat with us. That'll be fun. Uh, but until next week, this is your friend, Sen Byro. For your other friend, Perky Beantown Bowman, saying keep washing them dishes. Hell yeah. Hello, junkies. This is Parker, coming to you from the future where audio quality is not good. Uh, I just wanted to jump in here uh, from the future and say that although in the past, which is your present, uh, we picked, or I picked, to step up to the streets. That movie's no longer streaming, um, so I'm not going to pick it. But on the bright side, Step Up All In, which is like Step Up number five or something, is streaming on HBO Max. So watch it along with us. That's the one we're going to be doing, Step Up All In. Uh, probably a better movie anyway, so this is actually fortuitous. Um, at least the dancing is probably better. There's 
so much dancing in it. You guys are going to go crazy. You guys are going to be dancing while listening to the podcast. Um, at least that's my prediction. So step up all in. Now we'll go back to the present day. Uh, bye. I thought this was a lot of fun. But it is a little ghoulish.